You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. I've got a lot to cover today that would continue, uh, that helps us continue in God's presence and understand more about what it means to, to experience revival. So let's just jump right in, can we? Imagine, if you would, this scenario that's not really comical, but you'll think it is. Imagine a man who is married and he's been married for a few years. It seems like a beautiful marriage, seems like he loves his wife. But somewhere along the way, he kind of attracts other girlfriends. He entertains other women. And so though he says he loves his wife, he lusts other women. That's right. He doesn't love them. He lusts them. So much so that at some point, she says, you can't live here like this. So he moves out. Still maintains his marital relationship, apparently, but has other girlfriends and women. And one day he says to himself, this is just not the way marriage should be. Something's wrong about this. And he says, I need to go back and apologize to my wife. So he goes to the house and he knocks on the door. His wife answers and he says, honey, I just want you to know I'm I'm really sorry. She looks at him, and then right there with him is all her competition. And he brought the rivals with him. And he says, I really, really, I'm sorry. Do you think for a moment she would believe him? It should take you less than a second to answer that question. No. Why? Because there's no revival in their marriage as long as the rivals are present. Now, we laugh at that in some ways. Isn't that sadness? Because you may know someone like that, and you think, how ludicrous is that? And yet, that's exactly what Israel was doing to God. In fact, for 20 years, end of 1 Samuel 6, beginning of 1 Samuel 7, I believe they were knocking on God's door. Hey, God, we want to come back. And they stand there with all their rival idols. And God says, that's not the way this works. 20 years of that. Until finally at some point, there is a sense among the people that they've had it with their idols and they want to return to God alone. This is the sense in today's narrative. 1 Samuel chapter 7. When you open your Bibles there, please. And we find that between 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, where we left off last week, 20 years passes before verse 3. 20 years of lamenting after God, what I believe would be a knocking on the door, saying to some degree, we want to come back, we want to make this right, but they're lined up with all, the, all this competition, little c, of course. But something is stirring, something is changing, and finally it seems that And we don't know in the text exactly what happened, but 20 years of that, finally Samuel says to them, you know what? If you're really returning to the Lord, then you need to put away your idols and you need to serve the Lord only. And then he mentions this word again at the end of verse 4, only. In fact, I would say this is, of the 14 verses in this narrative, the uh, main verse. In fact, I would even go simpler and say this, it's the main word. If you want to know what's the key word of these 14 verses, it's that word right there, only. Because that's what distinguishes this revival moment from everything else previous. They were trying to get the ark to help them. They were trying to get God to do what he said, but they were also entertaining lots of other gods. But this time they're returning to serve the Lord, say it with me, only. It's mentioned twice. So understand in your Bible, maybe mark this. The word only mentioned in verse 3 and in verse 4 would be the key word of this narrative. And in fact, I'd say that verses 3 and 4 would be the key verses of this narrative. Now, we'll explain most of them in just a few moments. But can we take a minute and just kind of see exactly what I mean when I say these two verses kind of explain the rest of it? Let's go to our lab this morning. We haven't done this in a few weeks. Let's go to our lab, can we? And let's just kind of analyze what I mean when I say this word only are we not connected? It's probably my bad, Alan. I thought this might stay connected throughout. Let's see if I can get this up and going real quick. I mean, it stayed all morning long, you know. Then you go to use it. 
think we got it right here. There we go. Perfect. Let me show you how I've marked this in my Bible. I want you to do the same thing because I think it will show you exactly what unfolds in the text. Samuel says to them, if you are returning to the Lord, correct? So here's the idea. If you're returning to the Lord. But notice what he says. He's a qualifier here with what? The indication may be that prior to this, you came with part of your heart. You showed up with your competition. You brought the rivals. But no, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then he asked them to do some things. He says, put away the foreign gods. So let's circle put away. And then he says, you're to serve him. What's this next word? Only. Now, I would say that returning to the Lord... Serving Him only, um, directing your heart to the Lord are going to be synonymous phrases that were exemplified by two things. Watch this. Samuel said, put away and then serve Him. What did they do? Look at verse 4. Put away and they served. So you ought to connect put away and you ought to connect serve. It's how they did something. It's how they showed that they loved the Lord. Say it with me. Only underline it, star it, put a square around it, make a mark by it. This is the point, people. How did God know that they were serious this time? Because they took action to put away the rivals, direct their hearts to him, and serve him. Say it with me. Only. So these two verses really show us, we can go back to, to the verse on the screen now. They kind of show us what happens in the following story. I've kind of outlined it for you. Let's just read the text, make a few comments about these three areas, noticing the requirements of revival, the um, source of revival, the evidence of it, but all of it tied to this idea that they're coming back to the Lord only. This is the real key. Samuel gave this instruction. They said, we'll do it. Here's kind of how it unfolded, okay? I'll just leave this outline up there for you while we read. Notice, first of all, he says, of course, we won't read 3 and 4 again. We did examine that, looked at it. So in light of their agreement, their commitment to serve him only, to, to direct their heart to the Lord, to obey and put away the foreign gods, Samuel then said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. They hadn't sinned against Samuel. They hadn't sinned against their spouse. Who had they sinned against? And revival, when it comes to understanding how we prepare for it and its requirements, it's first and foremost understanding that it's only God that we have first and foremost sinned against. Your attitude must be one of, of, of a vertical nature first. They understood this. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah and well, the Philistines heard that they had gathered at Mizpah. It must have been that when they were under the Philistine rule, they had maybe outlawed corporate gatherings of worship. Word got back, they had gathered, so they're going to go and make sure that they're not in disobedience to the Philistines' law. They went up against Israel. Israel heard of it, and they were afraid of the Philistines. And rightly so, they had had a streak of losing number of the men, right? 34,000 at least. So they said, Samuel do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What a good prayer to pray now that after years of lamenting that, you know, uh, what's wrong? Can't you exist with other idols? Can't you help us along with the other gods? Now they're actually crying out to God alone. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. A, a fulfillment, by the way, of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 10. The word thunder is used in both places. God did what he told Hannah he would do. Men of Israel went out from Mizpah. They pursued the Philistines, and here things turned. They struck them as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name, say it with me, Ebenezer. Haven't said that word in a few years, have you? Ebenezer. And he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Understand that phrase to be spatial and geographic. Don't think 
well, God's helped us up to now. Like, we'll see what happens next. He's not talking about their life. He's talking about their location. It's actually an actual stone. And he drew a line. He said, you know, this is where the battle was. But God won the battle. So up to this place, here's where God helped us. It's an actual physical, spatial, geographical location. That's why I put a stone there. So as all the Israelites would see it in the years to come, they'd say, man, at this place, in this location, God helped us. It had been years of lamenting. It had been years of losing. But on this day, in this place, God showed up and helped us. They called it Ebenezer. The Philistines were subdued, did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. His presence there was strong on behalf of Israel against her enemies. The cities that they had taken from Israel, they were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Interesting, the Amorites are first mentioned here. Uh, they weren't the ones that Israel was battling, but they probably heard of the battle and thought, hey, you know, we probably ought to be ahead of the curve here. Let's not go to war with Israel. Let's just look for a truce early. <laughs> Let's don't be like the Philistines and lose. Word gets around, doesn't it? So Samuel judged all Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. So four places centered in about three or four of the tribes mainly that he would go and minister and serve and judge and keep them in right relationship with God and In fact, he built an altar there at Ramah to the Lord. Here is the the coming back of God's presence to his people. Notice just a quick outline. I've read through the text. We see the requirements for it. It's this idea of, of internal confession combined with external action. Let me ask you a question. Have a little quiz here. The internal confession was that of sinning against the Lord, right? What's the external action? What do you think it was in the text? You don't take a chance at that. They did what? They put away their gods. There were actual idols in different places, many of them uh, both male and female deities, and uh, sexual practices occurred at these places to these idols as a way to kind of pacify and to appease them. These were spread throughout different parts of the land. They were mentioned as a Ashereth, different idols like that. They tore them down, they destroyed them, they got rid of their idols. Understand something that when you're looking at, okay, how, how do we really experience God's presence? How, how do we come to a place where it's, it's not just a checklist or a duty, but we sense God moving among us, even personally in your life? Like, what has to happen? I think those two things are still true. There's internal confession. I would even say there's intercession for people. And then there's external action. You put away gods. You have to attack your idols. You've got to own your sin. Lord, against you and you only have we sinned. And can I just say to you, it seems like sometimes that's far and few between in the American church. We love to hold on to our idols, don't we? We rarely want to spend the time in front of God's presence confessing and repenting. But these two things are necessary. They're requirements to understand and experience God's presence. If you have noticed a distinct absence of God's presence from your life, and by that I don't mean that he's actually left or is out of control, correct? But that he has intentionally and divinely removed his favor and blessing from you to send you a message, of course. If you've noticed, there's just an odd coldness about your spiritual life. This is the place that you need to get to. Ridding yourself of your idols. Then internally confessing your sin. Directing your heart to the Lord. Now maybe you're thinking, well Todd, what's what's the way to do that? What's a good first step? Because that that can be a a mammoth task to undertake. Here's, I think, a, a great first step for those who want to return to the Lord. I'll use the phrase experience revival. Watch this. It'll be very basic for you. But this is what I think is a great first step of internal action and external action. I would say this. Just get back to the Bible. 
in that one habit, in that one action, you'll probably get rid of some idols that are taking your time, TV, hobbies. They're distracting you from God. There could be you know, a list of thousands there, right? But you know what's keeping you from God's word and his presence. So that's going to help you with that. And it's also then going to bring a contrition in your life as you see what God has said about himself and what he does and what he wants from us. Like, wow. And so, so just getting back to the Bible is one of the best first steps to really experiencing revival. I want you to hear from someone who can testify to this. Bob and Bev, would you join me up here? You may think that's like a basic step. Like, well, I don't know if that really true. Listen to their story real quickly about how just a single simple habit of reading the Bible really brought God's presence into their life in a way they've never known before. Bob, share, would you? Well, first of all, good morning. For those of you that don't know us, uh, my name is Bob DeWard. This is my wife, Bev. As Todd said, there was a time in our life when uh, we really weren't doing very well with reading the Bible. Not on a daily basis, not hardly at all. Matter of fact, we were failing miserably. Um, we just didn't, we went to church and we would hear the word preached, but we just didn't really do it on our own. One day we were sitting in church and we had the pastor challenge us, all of us there, to commit to reading the word every single day. And we were sitting there and we got convicted. And we went home and we talked about it and we said, you know what, we really need to do this. We need to take this step. And so we decided there in our house that we were going to start to read the the word every single day. And we weren't going to do it individually, but we were going to do it together. And so we got a Bible that was just called Walk Through the Bible in a Year. And so we sat down and we started to read that together. And to be honest, I didn't know if we'd stick with it because we hadn't done it before. But as the days passed, the weeks passed, the months passed, and we continued to read, this became, it was a discipline in our life. And we actually looked forward to reading. And we did it every day. And if we went on vacation, that was the first thing we packed was our Bible because we wanted to get up in the morning and read the Word. And December came around, and we were finishing up the book of Revelation, and we thought, wow, we read the entire Bible in a year, Genesis to Revelation. We'd never done that in our life. But I have to tell you, the tendency for us was to think, okay, we did that, we're done. Now what? And we th- So we talked about it, and we thought, you know what, let's do it again. So we started it all over again, and we read it, and we continued to do it. Now fast forward to 2016. We just finished eight straight years of reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I hope that doesn't come across as though we think we're more spiritual or that we're better, that we just did it because we got convicted by the Lord that we we really needed to be in the Word. Now, fast forward to January of this year, you would think after reading eight years that we, we get this, we're, you know, we can do this, we found ourselves struggling once again. We, we thought we wanted to do it in a different way this year. And so the first couple days of the year, we didn't read. And then I said, well, let's try the New Testament. So I read a couple chapters in Matthew, and then there was a couple more days that we, we missed and we thought, we're starting to look like just like before, when we, before we started this process. So we were at our lighthouse one night, and we were talking about this, and we shared with the group that we were kind of struggling with this year with, with our Bible reading. And thanks to Rennie Smith, who is in our uh, lighthouse, she pops up and she says, oh, I just found a brand new app. That you, can, that you can download for free. And we we're like, great. So we went home that night. We downloaded the app. And ever since this year, we've been back on track. Um, and, it's, and it's even got videos with it, which is awesome. We love it. So, so we just we read every single day. 
So we're back on track now, and we, we want to continue it for as long as we can, um, as long as God has us here on this earth. And I want to tell you, this, it's really impacted our life. Um, it's strengthened our relationship with, with God. It's strengthened our married relationship. It's made a huge difference. I mean, guys, when you read this book, and I read it out loud, and she listens, I mean, those words are real. I mean, you're reading them, and he's speaking directly to you. If you want to know how to treat your wife, how to love your wife, and you're reading it, and she's right next to you, that's powerful. And it's, and it's been really good for us. So we stand here today, Bev and I, we're humbled. We're thankful that God opened our eyes so that we could see that we really needed to do this. We're thankful that he opened our hearts and gave us the willingness to want to do it. And I'm thankful that he gave me Bev to do it with. Bob, Bev, just share briefly, would you? Um, You know, when the Lord convicted you at that moment eight years ago, and then even at the beginning of 2016, you felt yourself drifting. Yet you come back to the Word. How has that made a difference in your life? Like, does God's presence, does His power, like, seem more real? Or does it, has it brought revival to you? That one single habit of reading the Word is like, you know what, this is the best place to start. How has that made this more real to you? <laughs> I was hoping she would come through with this one. But... No, I have to say it, it really does make a difference. Um, and, I, and I can tell you that when January started and we weren't reading, we, you, we could feel it. There, there is a real difference when you don't get into the Word. A slow fade starts happening, just drift, you know? Yeah, you really do. You just you start to fade. And, and we could have went right back to where we were before we started, and it, it would have become real easy. It's just, to us, the Word is, is just powerful. They always say there's power in the Word. Believe it, because it's true. It, it, it transforms your life. It changes you. And you know it's not, and I know it's not me, because God's doing that. Yeah. I, I always wish I could do it, but I can't. I can't do it without him, but it's just made a big difference in our life and our married life in that we can share it together. It's just been, and it's really been fun to watch her grow in her faith. I don't know if she even notices it herself, but I've seen her grow immensely over these years, and it's, it's just fun to be part of it. Amen. All from one simple daily habit. You're catching this? This is not brain surgery class or rocket science class one simple habit let's just read the bible and by the way what god does today with people in bringing them back to himself keeping them from drifting and is what he did with israel the whole point with israel was come back to my word my word calls for you to worship the lord your god and him alone you're to worship obey the law god would say so what what god said to israel and how he's led us it really starts with one basic, simple habit. If you're wanting to return to God, here's a great first step. Just begin reading the Bible every day, and you will find God's presence revived and renewed in your life. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Beth. Can you thank them for me? Appreciate it so much. I wanted you to hear that because I think sometimes we come to church and we hear preachers kind of go on about what's right, and we often wonder, what's the first step to take in maybe doing this? That's a great first step. And my guess is, and if the surveys are right, only about 10 to 20% of the actual church body reads the Bible on a regular basis. I'm praying to God that's not true in this body. But if it is true, there's probably many of you who sense a cold absence spiritually, a strange deadness. What do I do, Todd? What's the first thing? How do I really get in position for God to move? Here's a great first step. Just open your Bible and begin to read and watch God work. It'll be a discipline. But God will respond and begin to work in accordance with his word, okay? So requirements for revival. It's, it's just 
a humble confession, an honest dealing with our situation, both externally and internally. And then as we do that, it positions us for what I say is the only source of revival, and that's God. Now notice, when we say the source of revival, we're meaning that we don't produce revival, though we do position ourselves for it. We don't produce it. You don't leverage God. I don't leverage God and say, okay, I did these. Send revival. Bring your presence. Show your power. Uh, We don't own God. We don't manipulate him. Amen, church? So we position ourselves. We prepare. And then we pray. And God works. But he is the sole producer. In fact, just statistically, in these 14 verses... The word Lord is mentioned 14 times. And of those 14 times, seven of them are between verses 5 and 9. So half of the times the Lord's name is mentioned, it's in this area in which we see that they're praying, God, we're doing what we can in one sense, but you have to send it. Here's kind of a funny way I've worded it. I've actually written it out for you to see. Maybe you could just say it with me. Revival is God sent, not man you factured or man you factured. I don't spell well in this sentence, but it's some good theology. Amen. So prepare yourself. Be willing to repent, confess, get back to the word, and then say, God, show up in my life. Show up in my life. How will you know if he does? I think the text gives us an indication of how God's presence is seen in what I call the evidence of revival. There was an initial victory, and then there was this um, long-lasting peace. And I don't want to be too uh, much of an allegorical preacher here, but on this point, I do want to take a little extra time to say that you'll know when God's presence is showing up. Watch this, church. Listen very carefully to me. You will know when God's presence is showing up by at least two things. There will be victory over sin in your life. And there will be a sense of peace that will even outlive those initial victories. If there's not some victory in your life over sin when God shows up, then Romans 6 isn't true. Sin shall not have dominion over you, Paul wrote to us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. So when God shows up in power, when his presence is there and we're aware of it, our appetites change, yes, but something happens on the outside and sin has less control of us. Why? Because God has more control of us. Let's just call it what it is. It's not hard to figure out. And when you look at some people's lives and the amount of sin that they're entangled in, you have to wonder, is God very present to them? When God revives his people, there is victory. And there is a long-lasting type of peace. Not that, that everything is perfect all the time, but what did Paul say in Philippians? There's a peace that passes understanding. And so though you may be in a storm, you know that God is with you. And that sin doesn't have dominion. One of the things I think interesting here is God didn't actually call for a truce, he actually won. I love that, don't you? So if you're thinking, well, Lord, let's just try to negotiate with the sin of my life. But we can find a middle ground here. God's not into truces. God's into victory. Amen? And victory comes when God's presence is there. Here's just a really kind of a a look at revival then. What's required in us to position ourselves to prepare for it, so to speak, and how do we pray and then experience it when it happens? We just, that God sends it by his gracious hand. And we know then that God is moving as victory occurs. And, and there's this inner kind of long-lasting peace. That's just kind of the way it works. So I didn't come to you this morning with like a lot of hard theological concepts. I came to you with some reality. That maybe your heart right now is saying, wow, that's not happening in my life. I don't have peace. I have turmoil, consternation. Man, I'm stressed. I don't know where I'll spend eternity. I've got relationships that need massive repair. I'm in a constant state of friction with people. Sin just continues to strangle me and beat me down. It's one after the other. 
often wonder, is God even real? You need revival. You need God to breathe life into you again. How does that happen, Todd? Confession, repentance. Deal with your idols. Turn to God only. Worship him only. And then in prayer and submission, say, God, move. And and watch him do that. Let's try to put this in a single thought, can we? Then I want to make a pretty stinging application that we can all kind of wrestle with. Because we've seen this morning that for revival to be experienced, all what? Rivals must be extinguished. Will you say that first phrase with me? For revival to be experienced, all rivals must be extinguished. This is the point of the word only. This is why they poured water out. God, you are more important than even what it takes to live. And by the way, they were in a desert-like territory. They're pouring water out to say, God, we'll give up even what's necessary for life to show you we really and only need you, God. All rivals, they, they, they destroyed their idols. They fasted, they prayed, they confessed to say, man, we want revival. So we're extinguishing all rivals. Our worship of God, which is the heart, and our service to God, which is our hands, must be single-mindedly, exclusively His. We sang it. You're purchased by His blood. You do not have two owners, church. No one else has given their life for you. No one else has shed their blood for you. Only Jesus. Amen? So guess who owns you? Only Jesus. Now, how does this land in our zip codes? 50-whatever, you know? I'm thinking specifically 50021 and 50023. But we have a lot of Des Moines folks, other metro people. So let's just take this metro area. How does this story kind of settle on your zip code? Well, let me just kind of unpack for you what I think is one of the idols that we in the 50021 and 23 zip codes have to wrestle with a lot. One that the folks at 810 Southeast 3rd Street, 50021, had to wrestle with. Let me take aim at a specific idol. Unbridled loyalty to sports. I'm going to be extremely transparent with you here. Which means I'm probably going to say something that either I'll get in trouble for, you'll be mad at, or may actually, I might need to take back later. I don't know. (laughs) I'll see how this goes. But for weeks I've been thinking, how how do we talk to our church about idols? Because everyone wants to point out someone else's. But what do we wrestle with here in Ankeny? Let me just be frank with you. One of the ones we wrestle with is an unbridled loyalty to sports. Our family walked this road. There were times we handled it well. There were times we didn't. It didn't seem to be as much of an issue with our older son. He mainly played school sports, uh, did some rec league stuff. It's when we entered the club world that things got weird, that the idol began to grow. And so our three girls have each experienced both rec, club level. They've done different things in our city. And Man, there were times, um, man, we struggled. I'm just being very transparent with you. Now, let me say this. Sports in and of itself is not a sin. Did you know that? Neither is food or shopping or student council or your job. But it's the good thing that wants to become a God thing that you've got to chop away at. And we found ourselves... Sometimes in trying to do a good thing, which is be involved with your kids, would you say that's a good thing? Yeah, we, I like to coach them. I just wanted to do whatever I could. But suddenly I found myself at times battling this thing that was trying to turn into a God thing in our family. I mean, those teams wanted to take every single day of our life. They wanted every hour of the weekend. And I can say this. Julie knows I'm going to say it. She'll say it. She'll be here at 1030. I would say our Our largest arguments were over sports. The devil would sometimes get between me and Julie, between me and our girls, Julie and the girls. And man, it was like a, it wasn't a wrestling match, man. It was like a, 
That was a grudge match at home. It was like, how do we get through this? So kind of just share with you as an application before we kind of, I'll enlarge this in a minute. Let me just share with you specifically on this idol. How does a family manage this idol that's always in the background waiting to choke the life out of your spiritualness? What does the family do? I think I'm not the only one that's been rowing that boat, and I'm still in it for a year, by the way. I'm not done with raising my kids yet. I'm close. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. My wallet appreciates that. My emotions appreciate that. But we're still kind of in it. What do you do? Can I just kind of be very transparent and tell you three things that we kind of ended up at? And this may offend you. You may think, Todd, there's not a verse for that. You're right. I don't have a verse for some of these. I have some experience to say, here's how we applied some principles. Because we saw this monster trying to strangle our spiritual life. If we'd have given in to everything they wanted, then my girls and Julie for seasons would never have been in church. Like that's just non-negotiable. We're not doing that. Now you could say, well, just don't ever miss. Okay, and, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I would challenge you on that for a moment as an honest pastor. Most pastors won't tell you this, but actually you do miss church. You go on vacation. You take holiday trips to your family. So sometimes an insecure parent, and I'm gonna, this is where I'm on ice here, I'm on thin ice here, okay? Sometimes an insecure parent will just make a really strict, over-the-top rule that actually don't really follow. Like, we just never miss church, but actually you do miss church. True? The question is, why do you miss church? Is it okay to go on vacation, but not okay to play in a tournament? That's a question you've got to wrestle with as a family. No one's ever told you that probably in church, have they? You're like, I thought you were going to have us get Sunday school pens, Todd. And... No, I'm just telling you, we wrestle. Like, man, how do you answer this question? Like, how do you tell your kids this matters most without creating almost a rebellion in your kids where they would, in the end, hate everything you stood for? How do you, how do you manage that and navigate that? Am I being too transparent so far? Are you, everybody okay? Here's where we landed. And we didn't do it perfectly. I'll admit that to you easily. We said this to our kids. You can go to two out-of-town tournaments a season. That's it. I don't know why we chose that number. It seemed like a, a good balance between where we all were, where we were all landing, you know. They were wanting multiple. And we just said, you know what? Each season you get two. You got to make your pick which ones you want. When you're out of town, try to go to church. And Julie always went... I could never go. I have this thing called a job. I'm a pastor, so I couldn't go on the weekends, right? Um, so Julie went. And so that just from navigating, that was, was, was something she had to do. If you're in town, the team takes the hit. So you're either late to the game or you uh, leave the game early. But we don't, we're not going to mess with our church family gathering if you're in town. So if you remember, you, may, you saw our kids come in sweaty sometimes. They leave a game early, run in here. I said, I don't care if you sit there in your soccer uniform. Go for it. No problem. But when church is on and you're in, and you're in town, we're here. And you only get two per season to miss. That's kind of how we did it. I don't have a verse for that, but here's what I think we got out of that. They kind of understood, hey, mom and dad want to work with me, but mom and dad love our church. And they began to kind of adopt that to where, hey, we love our church. We love our youth group. We didn't miss youth group for practice. We leave early. I'm just saying that you, as a family, if you live in Ankeny, if you're in the 50021, 5023 zip code, and your kids are involved in this specific thing called club sports, and then I think even now with rec sports, I mean, they just want to eat your weekend up. You'd better have a hard conversation and figure out some parameters. How do we balance this and manage this? Because otherwise, we're going to be swallowed by the monster of unbridled loyalty to sports. And it's wicked and it's sinful. But you know, let's just be honest. It's not just sports. That's the boat we primarily rode. It could be anything that wants to take all of your time, all of your attention, and pretend to be God in your life. And until you deal with that, watch this, God's presence, he's just not going to show up like you want him to. He's not going to be at your disposal on the weekend you're available. Forgive me. He's not just waiting for you to find some free moments to work him into your schedule. He's God. 
He owns every bit of your life. So whatever it is that's looming as an idol, are you willing to take an ax and with your family figure out how to chop that thing down? I would caution you against an unrealistic expectation that really no one follows. But I would also caution you against laying the axe down and saying, well, let's don't worry about it. They're only little for a little bit. Yeah. And this is the best years of life to invest in them spiritually. It's a mistake to sacrifice church on the altar of sports for your kids. Or any other team or club that wants every bit of their time. You are far wiser to say our spiritual family will matter after you're through with your NBA career. My son always thought he was going to play for the Denver Broncos. He didn't play for Ankeny High School. <laughs> okay. Now we believe, get on board your kids' dreams, have fun with them. The life has a way of knocking them out on their own, so don't, you know, don't bash your kids' dreams. Just have fun with them. But I don't have any D1 players. I don't have any NBA, NFL. I don't have any. And you probably won't either. If there's one in this city that goes... It's a short career. At some point, you come back to, okay, what is life? Life is living with your family and your spiritual family under God's authority. At some point, that's the crux of it. Are your kids going to be ready and prepared for that? That's what I'm saying, guys. So you got to raise them and teach them how to chop at their idols. They've got idols their whole life coming at them. So practice as a family. And when it comes to this one of unbridled loyalty to sports, that's kind of how we approached it when we did. We made some mistakes. I thought we had some good times. We ended right there limited number of times you can be gone per season. The team doesn't get the, the final say-so. When you're in town, church wins. So can I maybe take that specific thing and just show you, maybe let's broaden that out now and say, okay, Todd, how, how do we live rival-free? That's an, that's an application for here in Ankeny from 1 Samuel 7. But let's just give a couple of hints here. How do we live rival-free then if it's not about sports? Just idols in general. Trying to come back to God only. Revival is in view. We want God's presence and power. We want to see God move among us. Spiritually, as an individual, also as a church, I would say there's three things we've got to do at least that probably reflected in this text. I'll just give them to you in kind of a different way to word them. Keep chopping at your idols. Can I just help you relax? No one's got idol chopping down pat. Did you know that? Nobody does. If they say they do, that's an idol. They think they've got it down pat. That's the idol of pride. <laughs> just admit it, man. I'm, and like when, when Baba F said in our small group, man, I'm struggling with Baba reading. That was the best thing I could do. Some of you are so stinking proud in your small group, you've yet to share where you're, where you're weak and struggling. Man, share it. Get some extra axes in there to help you chop down those idols. Talk to your wife honestly. Talk to your husband honestly. Say, you know what? Man, I'm, I'm struggling in this area right now. But you must keep chopping at your idols. Identify what wants to take your loyalties. What your heart wants to crave instead of God. And just say, Lord, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to do what Israel did. I'm going to put them all away. And then keep looking at God's grace. Direct your heart to him. This is kind of what Hebrews says when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because my sense is, and this is something that I think I've been experiencing the last three or four weeks, just to be frank with you, is an unusual awareness that God's grace is bigger than my sin. Aren't you glad about that? Your mind sometimes race back to the sins you've committed. You're like, man, I've, I have blown it in ways that no one even knows about. I've done things that I'll only take to my grave. You ever thought that? Sure you have. Guess what? God knows what they are, and God remembers them no more and has put them as far as the east is from the west. That's how big his grace is. So the only thing that keeps me chopping at my idols is the fact that God's grace is bigger than all of them. Amen? So keep looking at God's grace. Jesus Christ on the cross, Paul described it as... It's the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so you really see all of God's glory and all of its strength and beauty when you see Jesus on the cross. 
dying for your sins. Man, that keeps you there at the idol, just chop it, doesn't it? And then lastly, keep connecting to God's people. I've always thought it was interesting that if you were to be around a campfire, you take a log and you set it all by itself, which goes out first, the fire or the log? The log, yeah. It, it won't burn near as long as the fire. But there's nothing inherently less hot about that log until you remove it from the fire. And I'm amazed at the amount of people who say, yeah, I don't need church. And you wonder why you're so cold? You wonder why you're so quickly dead to the things of the Lord? Isolation's the devil's playground. You need the body of Christ. Maybe you think I'm being extra bold here, extra honest, I don't know. I'm just doing my duty. You need the body of Christ. Stay connected, stay engaged, get into a small group, make attending a priority. Other times we miss, sure there are. People get sick, you go on trips, I get that. But you know in your heart when something's a priority. You know when it's like, well, I'm just trying to find a way out. When that starts occurring, man, dig deep in here. Something's not right. Connect to God's people, large group, small group. It keeps the fires hot, amen. Here's how I want to end today. Because you may be thinking, Todd, is that really possible? Can someone really go from just a coldness and a deadness to where there's spiritual life again, where God is... He's breathed on us. His presence is sensed. Like we know he's here. There's victory. There's peace. Yes, it can. God has done that. I want to read some scriptures that show us God doing that. I want to read them with you. So you'll see some scriptures come up. Um, there'll be times it'll say leader. There'll be times it'll say men. There'll be times it'll say women. When you kind of, will you take your cues and read with me? If it says congregation, we all read. Let's just start while we're seated. We'll read some scriptures. At some point, I'll have you stand. The band will start playing with me. We're going to end just with a couple of songs after this, and we'll leave, okay? So we're going to be out in plenty of time. Don't worry. But let's get a vision and a picture that what God is calling for in us today is not something he needs practice at. God is in the business of being present among his people as they prepare and posture themselves in humility and confession. God will move among his people. He will save people. He will sanctify them. Amen? Am I the only guy in the room that wants that? No, I don't think so. I long for God's presence among our church. For people to be saved and say, yeah, baptize me tomorrow. I'm unashamed to admit I'm a Christian. And no more of this like, yeah, I think I might be ready after 10 years. What's with that? Man, 10 years of God owning you and you still yet come to the place where you can say that to a body of people? serving and giving and witnessing. Man, it's only God's presence that's going to move us to radical obedience. So I'm, I don't want to leverage. I don't want you to leverage. I want God here. Don't you? Here's some scriptures that show God doing just that. Follow along with me, would you? Here's what I'll say first. Now, therefore, this is Joshua 24. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Read with me. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Here's some words from the book of Psalms. Together, would you, church? Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Men, read with me. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Women. And together, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Stand, church. Let's keep reading for a little bit. Here's some words from Isaiah. 
Let me hear what the Lord, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. See that if peace there? But let them not turn back to folly together. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Hear these words from Ephesians. Follow along with me. You were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked following the course of this world and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's a picture of those coming ages. And they sang a new song saying, Read together, church. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice church say it worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea that's everybody isn't it and all that is in them saying this To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.